Hi, my name's Rhoda Dakar, and you're listening to the Stateside Madness Podcast. Hi there, folks out there. I'd like you to meet Tommy McGuire's combo. Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness Podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American fan service. I'm Lori, along with my co-host, Polly, here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. Yeah, I think she's great, Amy Winehouse, but last time I saw her, actually, I met her in the street, I don't really know her, but yeah, of course I see her around in Camden, but um, I'd been out for dinner with my family and a couple of friends. I was walking up the road and I saw Henry, the owner of the Dublin Castle, I said, oh, there's a secret gig with Amy Winehouse tonight, if you want to come in. I said, oh, great. So I said goodbye to my family, I said, it won't be long, it was like half eleven. Of course, cut to three in the morning before she came on stage. And um, it's something when you're actually out doing Amy Winehouse, isn't it, at my age. And I think she's a great artist, isn't she? What a phenomenon. But I thought it was a amazing collaboration. Like I can see that, I can see that. I know what you're on about. Oh, she's got a bit of that scarfing going on as well, hasn't she? Yeah, you know, we both have a love, kind of slightly retro sound of mm. music, for sure, and, and it's a real kind of music, I think. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, yeah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Stateside Madness podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Polly. And what you just heard was an excerpt from an interview which Suggs gave The Mirror back in May 2009. And he's speaking, of course, about Amy Winehouse. Camden Town gave us two legendary music acts. One of them we all know and love, Madness. But the other was Amy Winehouse. So today we've decided we're going to do a special episode in honor of Amy Winehouse. In fact, the day that we are publishing this episode, July 23rd, 2022, is the 11th anniversary of Amy's death. So Polly, I know you're a bit of an Amy Winehouse fan, aren't you? I I am, but in all honesty, you know, I was kind of late to the Amy Winehouse game. You know, I'd seen her on Jules Holland, probably around 2003, maybe 2004, if it was rerun in the United States. And I was uh, impressed with her singing, you know, of course, but, um, you know, her songcraft, her finger picking guitar, which, you know, more or less always impresses me with um, pop acts when, you know, they're actually writing and performing their own music and instrumentation. So, you know, anyways, there was a little something there. So, I remembered her and then, you know, later on, uh, she'd be playing with Paul Weller and Jules Holland. And that was a few years later, I think. Um, They played Heard It Through the Grapevine. It was a really great rendition of it. So that more or less sealed the deal for me. And I started to pay attention a little bit more. But did I dive real deep, get in, um, you know, was a fan in earnest? Not so much, really not until after she had died. And then I went back, I had owned a couple of the albums, well, the only two albums, Frank, really, and and, uh, Back to Black. Yeah, 
So I started listening with a little bit more intention and uh, really came to like her a great deal. And made her respects too late, though. Hmm. Well, I'm much later to the party than you are, Polly. I, I mean, I knew, I think, maybe two of her songs. But the last two weeks, I have been completely immersing myself in all things Amy. So I've been listening to her music, reading books about her, reading articles, watching documentaries, uh, all, all in hopes of preparing for this episode. So speaking of which, we have three main sources that we've used to kind of pull together this episode. I think it's important to always acknowledge where the information is coming from. So one of them was Amy, the 2015 documentary film directed by Asif Kapadia. Another was Amy Winehouse Cashed Out, which was a 2018 episode of the Reels documentary series Cashed Out. And finally, the book, Amy Winehouse, The Untold Story by Chloe Govan. Now, here and there, I've also referred to some other supplementary articles, things like Wikipedia, The Guardian, a few other sources. Trying to be very careful, however, because so many of the things that were out there about Amy were from the tabloids. And as we all know, you really have to take that with a grain of salt. It's not always very good, accurate reporting. But for the most part, we're trying to stick to the, the facts of her life. And we're hoping to actually honor her memory and this just immense talent that has just gone way too soon. And we may as well start at the beginning then. Amy was born September 14th, 1983 in Enfield Town, England. Her parents were Janice, a pharmacist, and Mitch, a London taxi driver who kind of always had aspirations of being a jazz singer. Two of Janice's uncles were in fact professional jazz musicians. Mitch's mother, Cynthia, had also been an aspiring jazz singer in her younger years and had once been engaged to jazz singer Ronnie Scott of the famed Ronnie Scott's music venue. Some of Amy's fondest childhood memories were of singing with her family. She did standards like Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, Sarah Vaughan, and Ella Fitzgerald, and her family joked that Amy was singing before she learned to talk. So in her formative years, she was also a big fan of Michael Jackson and Madonna. She said, from the age of six, I listened to the Immaculate Collection every day. Now, Amy and her best friend, Juliet, were also very much into the hip-hop duo Salt and Peppa. And as a matter of fact, they formed a duo of their own, which they called Sweet and Sour. Sweet was Juliet and Sour was Amy. And they even created a song together, which they called Spinderella, which, as you know, Polly, is the name of Salt and Peppa's DJ. In fact, I do. Amy kind of had a little bit of a rough time, starting around age nine. So in 1993, when Amy was just nine years old, her father left her mother for his longtime mistress. And this left Amy just completely devastated. She really had always been kind of a daddy's girl. Around this time, she started to develop an eating disorder, specifically bulimia, and she started cutting herself. Uh, she had said once, I had a morbid curiosity to know what it felt like. Now, I'm no psychologist, but I do know, especially at a very young age, when you're going through a trauma like that, the child is trying to control whatever it is that she can control. And she can't control her father leaving. She can't control her mother's reaction, but she can control her own body. 
she can control her eating or her purging and and even with the cutting it's it's kind of an externalization of uh internal pain where you don't know how to get that pain out any other way understand once he was a family man so surely i would never ever go through it firsthand Okay, so what we just heard there was What Is It About Men, which is one of the very early songs that Amy composed. So following that tumultuous period of her early childhood, Amy began to channel her emotion into singing. She was encouraged by her grandmother, Cynthia, to apply to London's prestigious Sylvia Young Theatre School. Her application essay said, All my life I've been loud, to the point of being told to shut up. The only reason I have had to be this loud is because you have to scream to be heard in my family. She sang two songs at her audition, Ella Fitzgerald's Sunny Side of the Street and Michael Jackson's What About Us? At age 13, she was accepted with a full scholarship. However, outside of her music classes, she was disruptive. She pretended to be a witch and told everyone she had put a spell on her classmate, Billy Piper. You Doctor Who fans might remember Billy from Doctor Who. She had pierced her nose, which angered her tutors at Sylvia Young. They demanded that she take out all of her piercings. Because of her poor grades, her mother pulled her out of Sylvia Young and enrolled her in an all-girls Jewish school. That didn't last very long, and she dropped out at the age of 16. Attract me until it hurts to concentrate distract me stops me doing work i hate and just to show him how it feels i walk past his desk in heels one leg resting on the chair from the side he pulls my hair too hard to ignore masculinity you spin a spell i think you'd wear me well and that last song we listened to off of the frank album that would have been amy 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 aptly named her parents did pull her out of sylvia Young's school but sylvia young was still very fond of amy so despite Amy's poor academic record, Sylvia Young wrote her a personal recommendation to the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. And at age 16, Amy joined the National Youth Jazz Orchestra and it would become her first paid music gig. Now we're gonna listen to a, a song that she did with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, Moon River. She's only 16 years old. Keep that in mind as you're listening to this. Thank you. 
I can't get over how amazing she sounds at 16. I mean, she has the voice of, I don't know, like an old soul. You know what I mean? The, the emotion that she puts into it. Had you heard that before, Polly? Yes, I, I had, in fact. And yeah, your, your comment about old soul, uh, pretty spot on. Uh, you know, but she would still have a little bit of work to do to more or less find her own voice and her own style. Uh, but yeah, no doubt, very impressive. Okay, so also around this time, the father of Amy's best friend, Juliet, helped her secure a six-month internship at his news agency, World Entertainment News Network, and she became a trainee music journalist. Now, while she was there, she met a guy named Chris Taylor, who ran the London News Desk. Chris was seven years older than Amy, and he would soon become her first serious boyfriend. He was a guitarist and shared Amy's passion for music. Now, Amy fell hard and fast for Chris, but after a while, she started to lose interest. Now, she wrote a song called Stronger Than Me about Chris. And if you listen to these lyrics here, you've been here seven years longer than me. Don't you know you're supposed to be the man? not pale in comparison to who you think I am. And that really kind of gives you an idea, I think, uh, um, her feelings about this relationship. Let's listen to Stronger Than Me. Just to be stronger than me You've been here seven years longer than me Don't you know you're supposed to be While she was at the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, she came to the attention of a talent scout named Nick Shemansky, who would eventually become her manager. Shemansky encouraged Amy to record a two-song demo tape. The demo came to the attention of Simon Fuller. Now, Simon was one of the most important and influential people in the UK music industry. He had previously discovered the Spice Girls. In 2002, he signed Amy to his company, 19 Management. Fuller then negotiated a contract with Island Records, which at that time was part of the Universal Music Group. Okay, so this brings us to her first album, which was called Frank, uh, released in 2003. Now, it was named after one of her favorite singers, Frank Sinatra, but the name also had a double meaning since she had a reputation for being very frank or blunt in her conversation. The album was produced by Salam Remy, and it was released October 20th, 2003. All but two tracks were written or co-written by Amy. Now her manager, Nick Shemansky said she had aspired to be one of the great songwriters like James Taylor or Carole King. And I think she was well on her way. The US edition of this album had one fewer song than the UK version. The US version was missing the song, Help Yourself. The album itself was a modest hit, selling just about 900,000 copies in the UK and peaking at number 13 on the UK album charts. It earned much critical acclaim. She was compared to Sarah Vaughan, of course, who was one of her musical influences. 
However, at this point, she still remained mostly unknown in the United States. Frank spawned four singles, Stronger Than Me. We already heard that a little while ago. Take the Box, In My Bed, and the highly edited Fuck Me Pumps. Why don't we take a listen to the latter two? When you walk in the bar and you're dressed like a star, rocking your F me pumps. And the man notice you with your Gucci back crew, can't tell who he's looking to. Cause you all look the same, everyone knows your name, and that's your whole claim to fame. Never. Okay, so we had just heard In My Bed and Fuck Me Pumps. Now, just a, a, a note. Uh, that's one of the things I find endearing about Amy is her uh, poetic use of profanity. Generally speaking, I find putting profanity into a song to be a bit of a hack move. Uh, it's uh, sensational, often plays little or no part to the integrity of the song, and it's often a distraction. If you take a listen to Fuck Me Pumps, it's far from that. It's integral to the song um, and uh, used in a very witty manner as well. So good on her. I find that song particularly endearing. Yeah, very. Uh, one of the qualities that I, I think we're probably going to talk about at some point is Amy was very, I don't want to use the word vulgar necessarily, but she didn't give a fuck. You know, she would tell you exactly what she thought of you to your face and she didn't mince words. To some extent, I think she did like to shock people, but there was always a bit of truth to what she was saying. She wasn't just saying things just for the, the purpose of shocking. That's just how she was. Some people have said, you know, that it was kind of refreshing almost that she had this very down to earth manner about her, that she wasn't, you know, all highfalutin like, uh, like so many singers, especially singers that have been trained at like the Sylvia Young School. So it was a double edged sword, I think, for her, you know, I think on, on one hand, I mean, she was very genuine. And that endeared her to a lot of people, but I think it also rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. So shortly after she released Frank, 
In July 2005, she was hanging around in Camden Town at the Good Mixer Pub, and she met a regular at the bar. His name was Blake Fielder Civil. Now, at the time, he was in a relationship with somebody else, but Amy just fell head over heels for this guy. And he introduced her to heroin and crack cocaine, and they had a very tumultuous relationship. Now, reportedly, he broke up with her by text message later that year, saying he didn't want to leave his girlfriend for her. And she mined the pain of her heartbreak for her next album. All I can ever be to you is the darkness that we know and this regret I got accustomed to. Once it was the ride, when we were at our high, waiting for you in the hotel at night. I knew I had him at my match, but every moment we get snatched, I don't know why I got so attached. It's my responsibility, and you don't own nothing to me, but to walk away, I have no capacity. He walks away, the sun goes down, he takes the day, but I'm grown, and in your way, in this blue shade, my tears So the last song that we listened to was Tears Dry On Their Own. That would be featured on the album from 2006, Back to Black, her highest charting album, really, of her entire career. And some people might say her magnum opus. But before we get too far into Back to Black, producer Salam Remy had said that the label was about to drop Amy because of her reputation for being difficult. She stayed with Remy and spent four days in his garden writing lyrics. Remy had said that she did not drink for that entire time. Now, according to Mark Ronson, who would also be a producer on the album, she wrote Back to Black in two or three hours about Blake. Why don't we take a listen to Back to Black? that song that is such a good song now around this time her father mitch reportedly did not want her to go to rehab for her heroin addiction saying it was just a broken heart and she would get over it now one night she was in a pub with producer mark ronson and on the way home she was a little drunk and she said i said no 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 i don't want to go to rehab now mark ronson said he stopped in his tracks and said i just heard a pop song there and that would become probably Amy's best known song. Now, Mark Ronson would play a demo of the song Rehab on his radio show in New York. And that was one way that she started to get some airplay here in the States. But this really was a pivotal song that made her a commercial star. Now, after her death, Mark did come back and say he felt bad that 
he wasn't listening to what she was saying. He was so caught up on the fact that he thought, wow, that's such a good pop song that he, he missed what was essentially a, a cry for help from Amy. But this is, this is the song that really kind of caught fire in the States. This is Rehab. They tried to make me go to rehab. I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. I ain't got the time. And if my daddy thinks I'm fine, they tried to make me go to rehab. So we just listened to Rehab, of course, probably the most notable track off of the Back to Black album. Now, some quick facts about the album. Amy had drawn upon her sadness and heartbreak for the songs. No wonder there. At that point, it had pretty much become her signature style. The album was released on October 27th of 2006. Now, in the UK, it reached 13 times platinum later on by 2018. And it sold 3.93 million copies in the UK. It happens to be the UK's second best-selling album of the 21st century so far, as well as the 12th best-selling album in the UK of all time. In the United States, the album debuted at number seven on the Billboard chart. Following her multiple wins at the 50th Annual Grammy Awards, the album reached a new peak of number two. The album was certified double platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America on March 12, 2008, and has since sold over 3 million copies in the U.S. alone. So speaking of rehab, Polly, Amy performed rehab at the 2007 Brit Awards. That was February of 2007. And Back to Black was nominated for British Album of the Year. Now, unfortunately, she lost to the Arctic Monkeys. However, she did win British female solo artist that year. And guess who's back? That's right. Amy starts to become successful. Blake came back into Amy's life. And unfortunately, the drug use started up again. Now, during a photo shoot with Terry Richardson for Spin Magazine, it was really apparent that Amy was starting to spiral out of control. She started carving Blake's name on her stomach with a shard of broken glass during the photo shoot. Despite this, they married in Miami on May 18th, 2007. And I did see a video from around this time. And I think it speaks volumes as to the kind of person this man was, is. He, he's sitting at a restaurant and he says, who's paying for this? I'm broke. Can we get a bottle of Dom Perignon? Who's paying for this? I'm broke, but I want the best. I want the most expensive thing on the menu. And of course, I think he knew that Amy was going to be the one to pay for it. Meet you downstairs in the bar and heard your rolled up sleeves in your skull t-shirt. You say, why did you do with him today? And sniff me. 
Okay, so that was You Know I'm No Good, which was another song written by Amy for the Back in Black album. Now, in August 2007, shortly after she married Blake, she was hospitalized for a reported overdose of heroin, ecstasy, cocaine, ketamine, whiskey, and vodka. That's a heck of a mix. Doctors said because of the amount she had ingested and her petite frame, it was a miracle that she was not in a coma. Now, her friends and family tried to stage an intervention, but according to her manager at that time, Ray Cosbert, Amy's father had said no to rehab because she was already booked for a tour of America. Boy, it sounds just like the lyric from rehab, doesn't it? I ain't got the time, and if my daddy thinks I'm fine. Art imitating life, or is it life imitating art? I'm not sure. But ultimately, she and Blake went to rehab together on Osea Island. But as soon as they returned from rehab, they started binging again. This was really a codependent relationship. It was really not good for either of them. I know in one of the documentaries, some of Amy's friends were saying that she just wanted to feel what Blake was feeling. And that's why she was doing the heroin and the cocaine. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't in her head, but it's an interesting observation. So we started to see photos of Amy appearing all over the British tabloids. She had bloodstained ballet flats in one of them. There was another one where she and, and Blake both had bruises where it looked like maybe they'd been into a physical fight. And um, it really, really, I think, started to get a little bit brutal as far as the, the British tabloid press are concerned. Now, we've seen this before. It's maybe difficult for us to fathom here in the U.S., but the British tabloid press is just notoriously nasty and brutal. I mean, we saw it with Princess Di and Dodie. I mean, we, we saw it with Michael Hutchins and Paula Yates and the way they were hounded by the, the tabloid press. And it's just, it's vicious. It's brutal. It's no wonder to me that so many artists, when they make it big, decide to leave the UK. Just uh, having to live with that on a day-to-day -day basis is just unfathomable to me. Yes, in fact, it is unfathomable, that sort of behavior, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, it does, does happen. However, the inevitable did happen in November 2007. Police battered down the door of Blake and Amy's Camden home and arrested Blake for assault. Now, that assault uh, charge came around from a bar fight that had happened previously, and also he was arrested for witness tampering offering a bribe of 200,000 pounds to the man he assaulted in exchange for dropping the charges. You know that he didn't have 200,000 pounds. You know whose money that was, and it was not his money. That would be the truth, yeah. So Amy would have inevitably foot, footed the bill for that had it taken place. Blake was incarcerated until February of 2009. But nonetheless, we are seeing the strains um, in that relationship, if not strains, at least the downside to their behavior. Yep. And that may have been the inspiration for a lot of our songs, one being Love is a Losing Game. Why don't we listen to that? Bye. 
Now in 2008, we're going to skip ahead a little bit to the Grammy Awards. And this is actually significant to me because this is the first time I'd ever even heard of Amy Winehouse, let alone seen her perform. I was just completely blown away. I'm like, who is this woman? So Amy was nominated for six Grammys that year in 2008, including Album of the Year and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. Now, U.S. officials had initially denied Amy a visa because of her drug problems. The last minute, they decided they would give her a visa, but it wasn't enough time for her to actually fly to the States. So she performed two songs at the Grammys via a video feed, You Know I'm No Good and Rehab. Now, she won five Grammys that night. And I went back and I watched it again, now that I know what I know about Amy. And when the presenters, Tony Bennett and Natalie Cole, read her name for Record of the Year, everyone behind her starts going crazy. They start jumping up and down and high-fiving. But Amy is just very, very calm. And she looks to me like she's starstruck. Tony Bennett, you'll remember, had been one of her childhood heroes, right? She used to sing Tony Bennett songs with her family when she was young. So I think maybe having this legend speaking your name on international television really had to be an amazing moment for her. She really looks to me like she's starstruck. Now, eventually, several years later, Tony Bennett would record with her a duet in 2011 called Body and Soul. I'd like to play a little bit of that here. Why haven't you seen it? I'm all for you, body and soul. I spent my days in a hunger So Polly is a good Italian girl. You know, I love me some Tony Bennett. And uh, what a what a very, very powerful duet that that turned out to be. Tony Bennett had actually called her, and I'm quoting here, a natural, true jazz singer. And a jazz artist doesn't like 50,000 people in front of them. So I think he kind of recognized a little bit she she had some anxiety when it came to performing in front of large groups of people. So Amy still continued to be hounded by the British press, and it really became almost this kind of feedback loop. The more the paparazzi chased her, the more she started to fall apart. And then the more she fell apart, the more the press would hound her for these pictures and articles. It was really starting to become a very tenuous situation for her. Uh, that it was truly a vicious cycle. Now, with Blake away in prison, Amy did seize the opportunity to go to St. Lucia in 2009 to try to get away from the press and try to get clean. It's reported that she had completely stopped with heroin and cocaine, but she still drank heavily. Her father, Mitch, showed up with a film crew, precisely not what someone needed who was trying to clean up her life. 
while in St. Lucia, Amy hooked up with actor Josh Bowen. Blake filed for divorce on the grounds that Amy had committed adultery. So that actually probably was for the best, right? I would say so, yeah. Or she was finally going to be free of his influence. But how horrible for her father, right? What she needed, she needed the love and support of her father, whom she'd looked up to her entire life, tried to please her entire life, right? She has that tattoo daddy on her shoulder. And um, it almost seems a little bit opportunistic that he would show up with a film crew like that right when she's at her most vulnerable. Yes, it does, uh, by all appearances, seem that he was trying to, um, you know, utilize his own daughter as a cash cow, and um, hence uh, the insistence that she continue to perform and record rather than work on herself. So, yeah, pretty unfortunate situation. I don't know how a dad can do that. Well, after about eight months in St. Lucia, she returned to the UK. Now, ostensibly, this was to record a new album. Eh, the rumor was that she kind of wore out her welcome with the locals in St. Lucia, which is kind of understandable, I think, given some of her past behaviors. Now, she did manage to stay off the drugs, but her alcohol abuse was an ongoing problem. And the doctors had, had warned her away from this, particularly given her bulimia. So she really had a number of physical problems that were happening simultaneously. Now, her father, Mitch, and her manager, Ray Cospert, pushed her to make a comeback tour in Europe, which is not at all what she wanted. She wanted to focus her attention on creating new music. She wanted to collaborate with Questlove, Most Deaf. The last thing she wanted was to keep singing the same old songs, like Back to Black on another tour. But despite this, her manager and her father insisted on a tour. She was scheduled for dates in Serbia, Spain, Switzerland, Italy, Austria, Poland, Hungary, and Romania. Which brings us to June 18th, 2011 at the Tuborg Festival in Belgrade, Serbia. Now this particular performance is very well documented. There's several videos from the concert. At one point, Amy sits down with her back to the stage and refuses to perform. The crowd is booing her. She does eventually stagger through her set list. A former electronic musician, Moby, he was also playing the festival, and he had said later, Amy was just standing there, swaying back and forth and mumbling occasionally. She was on the stage for about 30 minutes. Then she left and was lying down on a flight case backstage surrounded by some people yeah so moby really recognized that i think she was in trouble at that point one of the songs that she did manage to get through that night one of my favorite songs that she's done it was a cover of the zootons 2006 single valerie gotta play that one well sometimes Stop me. 
So after that fiasco, the rest of the tour was canceled. And Amy reportedly refused to even collect her performance fee for that performance in Belgrade. Amy's final public appearance was at the Roundhouse in Camden on July 20th, 2011. Famed venue for a hometown girl. Now, she wasn't appearing at the Roundhouse in her own right. In fact, she was there with her goddaughter, Dionne Bromfield, who was supporting the boy band The Wanted at the iTunes Festival. She arrived on stage for the final song, a cover of the Shirelles' Mama Said. A few days later, on July 23, 2011, Amy Winehouse was found dead in her home in Camden. After a second inquest in 2013, the reason for her death was named as accidental alcohol poisoning. At the time, she was just 27 years old. Wow, what a short, tragic life, but such an amazing talent. You know, the unfortunate thing is this is not like Prince, where there's a vault of music that there's going to be released, you know, year after year, there's going to be like this treasure trove of music. Amy really did not have very much. What she did have was released by Island Records as a posthumous album called Lioness Hidden Treasures in December 2011. It featured several unreleased songs, covers, and demos, including the first single, Body and Soul, with Tony Bennett, which we heard a little bit ago. And the album was released to benefit the Amy Winehouse Foundation, whose stated mission is helping young people to make informed choices about drugs and alcohol and giving women a safe place to recover from addiction. Now, Our Day Will Come was released as the album's second and final single on December 4th, and it was Winehouse's first solo single to be released since 2007. couple of notes uh, about Amy from a fan perspective. I think what made Amy interesting to me in particular is uh, she was no doubt a person um, full of contradictions, paradox, uh, really, you know, vibrant personality, but, uh, you know, with so much contradiction, paradox, angst, things in a person's life, um, you know, that makes for a volatile personality a lot of times. And cert Amy certainly had that in spades. But I think why I like her, you know, as a fan is that she really broke a lot of rules for me personally as a music fan. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I just cannot abide by a lot of artists. You know, when somebody purposefully does a retro sound, usually tends to be a bit of a turnoff for me. She did a purposeful sort of Eartha Kitt kind of growl. And no, there's no pun in saying Eartha Kitt growl. I meant that exactly perfectly. 
you know, she had a bit of a hypersexualized persona that tends to not work for me a lot. And, you know, there's the gratuitous profanity, but she managed to do it all quite cleverly. She was crafty, very, very skilled. Um, she pulled all this stuff off really, really well. She did retro sound, yeah, sure, but she had it really quite updated. Doesn't hurt to have Mark Ronson producing you. Uh, the purposeful growl, well, that just became Amy's sound. You know, pretty woman, so the hypersexualized thing, I mean, that was always gonna be something that was uh, part of her persona. But uh, yeah, so I, th I think the, the whole thing, this high wire circus act of her doing a bunch of very, very clever, very, very tricky things to pull off really made her a very compelling artist in my eyes. You know, I really appreciate a number of things about Amy, especially now that I've really immersed myself in her work. Um, she was kind of a breath of fresh air, I think, in, in the music scene around this time she was doing something that was so completely different from what other female pop artists were doing at the time. You know, like you said, she was, had kind of a retro vibe, you know, she was into like Sarah Vaughn and, and Ella Fitzgerald and that kind of stuff. And she has had this amazing contralto voice, so unique and unmistakable. You know, there are very few singers I think that have that kind of a unique unmistakable voice but you hear her and there's no doubt in your mind that's Amy but even more so I think than her singing talent and her musical talent was her songwriting she very clearly lived in a lot of emotional pain and turmoil but she channeled that so beautifully into her lyrics and she could do things with lyrics that a lot of people had not done not recently anyway and it sounds so natural and so genuine when it's coming from her, but you can really feel, you know, what she is feeling. You can really feel what she has put into these songs. And I, I think it's just so sad that, that she's gone so soon. It's so sad that she didn't really have the kind of support system that she needed to get through what she was going through. And um, the people that were around her that should have been there for her really weren't. And I think a lot of them were focused more on, on the money and, and, you know, the financial aspect that Amy could bring to them. And that's really sad and really unfortunate. A, a, a star burning bright and fast, right. And just burnt herself out. So her impact is going to be felt for a long time and, and she's definitely missed. So for a closing song today, to bring it back to madness, right? Some of our listeners are like, well, that's all great, but what about madness? This is a madness podcast. Well, Madness did write a song about Amy Winehouse. It's called Blackbird. And this is on their 2016 album, Can't Touch Us Now. The lyrics are actually based on something that happened. Suggs had told The Guardian, three or four days before Amy Winehouse died, I saw her walking down Dean Street with a guitar over her shoulder. She said, all right, nutty boy, as she walked past. It made me laugh because I'm 55 years old, but it's such a winehouse thing to say. It really got me. And three or four days before she died, I'm almost wondering if maybe she was on her way to that show at the Roundhouse with her goddaughter. She might have been. So 
really kind of sad as we kind of think about what might have been. Um, but on a happier note, you have sent me a playlist. Can you can you talk a little bit about what uh, what we're going to be doing in two weeks or no? Are we doing it in two weeks? I think so, because we don't have anything else planned. <laughs> sure. So uh, Lori had this idea. She thought, well, you know, it's summer. People are out doing things. We work pretty hard at the podcast. Maybe we could do something to maybe do a little less in the way of research and something a little bit more like summer. So we more or less challenged each other to do summertime playlists. And if you remember at Christmas, this is more or less the same thing we had done then. We made a playlist, we posted it on YouTube, and this time around, we're going to do the same thing. It probably wind up being on YouTube and Spotify, but it's my turn to go first. And so I came up with a playlist for the summer. Now, I got to say, Polly, it wasn't really my idea. I actually stole it from another podcast. <laughs> So uh, shout out to Hayden and B at the NXS Access All Areas podcast. They 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 did this idea and I stole it. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to uh, hearing what you've got on your playlist, Polly, and to talking about it in two weeks. I guess that's it for now. So we're going to leave you with Blackbird by Madness. And it's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from me. Go get a beer, Stateside Madness. I was walking down Dean Street, heading nowhere at all, aimlessly strolling through Soho, and the rain began to fall. All right, nutty boy, she said, passing me on Dean Street. She's striding through the puddles on black stiletto feet. Over one shoulder, swirling swagger in her stride. And a well appointed pencil skirt, or maybe, just maybe, 18 inches wide. The voice of fallen angels, lost lovers in the night. And blackbird on the back at me and smiled she winked one deep black mascara eye well I narrowly missed the lamppost as I made to make my reply and black taxi splashes diesel rainbows through the neon air behind fishnets stocking pie hydraulic derriere the voice of Over one shoulder, just a glimpse of pink lapella bra, glowing in the mist round one of Scots. There she goes, Sirletwatwa. We briefly faced each other, then she turned and walked away, and the rain lashed.
splashed down on Dean Street on that black and mournful day. Hey, the voice of Florida. 